Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 from Adam to Noah. The fifth chapter of Genesis provides us with a ten paragraph list of descendants from Adam to Noah, with Noah's three sons being at the end of the list. Many genealogical lists like this are difficult to work with, but this one is exceptionally interesting and it's significant. In one sense, this chapter provides us with a link between two of the most significant figures in the infancy of human history, that being, of course, Adam and Noah. But it provides us with an extended reminder of the prevailing theme of death, which began with Adam, but it also serves to present us with a contrast to that theme, particularly in the person of Enoch. So this is actually a fun chapter. I think you're going to enjoy it. In this chapter, Moses lists Ten panels of names, each time recording that, that someone lived X number of years and then fathered the next name on the list. Then lived Y number of years, fathering other sons and daughters, the list says. Finally concluding with the total number of years lived and the fact that that person died. This happens over and over again. We see with Adam in verse 5, and he died. And then Seth in verse 8, and he died in Enosh in verse 11, and he died and so on. Over and over again, that theme of death is predominant. But there are a couple of exceptions to that theme, and one, the most prominent, being Enoch. And then Noah's death is not recorded in this chapter. It will be recorded on into chapter 9. But in studying this passage, there are three of the ten panels that we'll focus upon this morning. First in verses 1 through 5, which begin by affirming that Adam was created in the image and the likeness of God, and reminds us of this key word in Genesis, perhaps the most important word in, in the whole book. It reminds us of the word blessing. The word to bless or blessing is probably the key word in the book of Genesis. And these first five verses remind us that Adam was blessed. On the day that the man and the woman were created, God blessed them. This is important because it happens in the middle of a chapter on death. In the middle of the chapter on death, God reminds us that we were created to be blessed. Very important theme for all of our times, but especially, I think, in the time in which we live. Then in verses 21 through 24, this is the second panel that we'll focus upon this morning. This introduces us to a remarkable man, an absolutely remarkable man named Enoch, who serves as an exception to the pattern of death and causes us to recall for just a moment, even a fleeting moment, the principle of blessing that we were created to enjoy. And finally, in, a, in almost a postscript in verses 28 through 21, uh, 31, uh, Moses presents us with Noah, who will be, of course, the predominant figure in chapters 6 through 9. Read with me, if you would, in the first panel that we'll take a look at, the first of these three, in verses 1 through 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day which God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them, key phrase, and he blessed them and named them man in the day in which they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. 
So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So you see how this follows the pattern that I described before. With this one exception, the idea that blessing is inserted, a reminder that we were created to be blessed. That's, that's, that's God's purpose in creating us, was to bless us. But sin got in the way, and we see that throughout the rest of this chapter. Time after time, actually eight different times in the chapter, the phrase, and he died, comes up. And it would be nine, except for Noah's is not going to come up until chapter nine. These verses serve to bring us back, to focus our attention back on the beauty of creation and the, the value that God places upon mankind, which is the pinnacle of his creative activity. Both the man and the woman, both the man and the woman were created in the image of God and as such have very special value before him. God values all that he creates, but mankind is at the top of the list. You might not have ever thought you were at the top of any list, but you're at the top of God's list. He values you greatly. No other creature, no other aspect of creation shares God's image. That's why it's so disgraceful when we allow atheistic activists and their accomplices to place the interests of other species of God's creation on a par with that of humanity, and then attempt to legislate protection of certain species to the harm of human beings. That's pure atheism at work. That's not theism. That's atheism at work. But make no mistakes, Christians should be the first people on the planet to promote care for our planet. I want clean air and clean water as well. I don't want to breathe polluted air. I don't want to drink dirty water. We should provide competent stewardship for all of God's creation. That's part of our God-given responsibility. But to place other aspects of creation on a par, that's the key idea, on a par with humanity is not a biblical concept. Some people go beyond that and not just place other aspects of creation on a par, but they place it in a position of superiority to human beings. And that's a problem. So you get the point? We were created and we were given the responsibility for stewardship over this planet. And we should take that seriously. But we should never forget that human beings and only human beings were created in the image of God. So when we have to make a decision, and sometimes those decisions are difficult, but we, we never want to put any other aspect of creation over the needs of a human being. Doesn't work that way, not biblically. But we, not, we want to make sure that we take special note in verse 2 of this phrase, and he blessed them. The, the idea of blessing is further mentioned in this passage when Adam's, the report that Adam had other sons and daughters, and this implies fertility. From chapter 3 on, we've seen, we've witnessed in vivid detail the negative effects of sin. And I know it's kind of weighed on me. Perhaps it's weighed upon you. It's just almost week after week we've seen the negative things that have happened because of Adam's sin. In the first 15 verses of chapter 4, we saw that sin is not benign. It's malignant. Our Lord himself explained, either we master it or it will master us. And in this dispensation, we master sin by saying yes to the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence and ministry in our life and no to sin. We witnessed Cain's murder of Abel. And then later in chapter 4, we're introduced to a man named Lamech. Remember him? who had no regard either for the sanctity of marriage 
or for the sanctity of life. Even writes a taunt song about the murder or the murders that he had engaged in. So it's been pretty negative for several lessons now. So it's, it's really somewhat refreshing to me to be reminded in verse 2 of the concept of blessing, the concept of enjoyment. This life, we were meant to enjoy this life. We were meant to be blessed by God. Sin is what got in the way. We were created to be blessed. Isn't that a wonderful concept? Because God is perfectly holy, He cannot bless that which does not correspond to His holiness. So He had to punish sin. But let's let's not get so wrapped up in sin and its consequences, that we forget the idea that we were created to be blessed. And it's easy to do that sometimes. We live in a tough world. We see sin all around us. And it's, and it's, it's easy to get wrapped up in the negativities. But just for a moment, let's remember one of the positive things, that we were created to be blessed. Now, granted, some of the guys on TV, I believe, have done a great harm, and that they talk only of God's blessing. They tell you that you can have your best life now, but all the while refusing to even utter the word sin in a sermon. Now, in record of saying, I will not utter the word sin in a sermon. That's negative, they say. And there's already enough negativity out there, so there's no need to add to it. That's their philosophy. Paul named names, so I'm going to do it right now. I'm sure Robert Schuler is a nice guy. He certainly seems to be that way. But with all due respect, with all due respect, my Lord and Master did not suffer and die on the cross outside the city of Jerusalem because I lacked self-esteem. With all due respect, that's insulting to me because I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he did on that cross outside of Jerusalem was far more than that. We had a much bigger problem than a lack of self-esteem. And Jesus didn't suffer to satisfy his own self-esteem, as Dr. Schuler has written. Here's the point. In our thinking, there must be a biblical balance between the conviction that we are sinful and the unworthy, and, and we're totally unworthy of blessing, and the wonder of the fact that God blesses us in spite of this. And you know what that's called? It's called grace. So there has to be a biblical balance. And I think that's the beauty of this passage. Moses does that for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in a passage where we have death mentioned eight times. Eight times in one passage before he ever mentions the death, he mentions blessing. So there has to be a balance. Now we're going to see in a minute in the person of Enoch how you can live in a culture of death and still be blessed. And since we live in a culture of death, and most of us want blessing, you'll want to pay particular, particularly close attention to verses 21 through 24. We'll get there in just a moment. Jesus Christ's death frees God to fulfill his original design and then to bless us. He couldn't bless us unless Christ had died. He can't just look the other way at sin. When Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of Seth, The text tells us, in his own likeness, according to his own image. I'll never forget, in the early days of the church, when we first started meeting over the Grime Street location, I was preaching this passage on a Sunday night, 
And a gentleman who was a visitor spoke up. Now, we're not usually used to that in a church service, so it kind of shocked everybody. And when I said that mankind is created in the image of God, this individual spoke up and he said, No! Mankind is not created in the image of God. Mankind is born in the image of Seth. And I said, Well, I know that. <laughs> but Genesis chapter 9 mentions that we were created in the image of God, so we're, we're splitting it just a little too thin here. Yes, yes, it's true that with Seth comes another something else. Uh, because of Adam's sin, there's something else that we get through the line of Adam, and not just the image of God. We still maintain the image of God, but Seth perpetuates the blessing bestowed upon humanity. That's the image of God thing. But he also inherits the consequences of Adam's sin. So we get a, a double portion, one of it being kind of a negative here. Because of Adam's sin... We inherit his sinful nature. But that doesn't mean that we don't now have the image of God. That's going to be the basis for capital punishment that we'll see when we get to Genesis chapter 9. Because we have been created in the image of God. Now let's skip down to verses 21 through 24. This is where we'll spend most of our time together today. Verses 21 through 24. Introduced to this man named Enoch who lived in a culture of death but still came out with great blessing and great enjoyment of life. How can, we, how can we live in the culture that we live in, where death and sin and things that are disgusting are all, all around us? You can't drive home this afternoon after this service and not see some evidence of the fall of man on your way home. Whether it's on the roadways and the way that people treat you, or whether it's on a billboard and the images that have been placed upon there, or whether it's on the radio and something that you hear, you're going to be exposed to this culture of death. So how can we live in this culture and, and really live in it? I'm not talking about taking the monastic approach and we just divorce ourselves from the culture, lock ourselves in our homes, and act like nothing's happening out there. That's not Christianity either. But how can we live in this culture of sin and death and still have enjoyment of life? Well, this man, Enoch, is the model of that. You know, it's only covered over a, a few verses and he's mentioned, and then he kind of fades away until some other mentions later in the Scripture, particularly in the book of Hebrews. But let's read along in verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. Second time that phrase has been used. Notice that over just a couple verses. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Most of us, when we take a look at this passage, we're more concerned with Methuselah, because he lived longer than anybody else. So that's the name we really pick out. Don't, don't do that. Enoch is the name we need to focus upon in this passage, even more than Adam, even more than Seth. Because Enoch is the exception. Under Adam's name it says, and he died. Seth, and he died. But Enoch was special. And we need to see what makes him so special. How could he live in this culture of death and still come out okay? How can he live in a culture of death and still come out incredibly blessed? And the phrase is, he said it twice, he walked with God. Enoch is the seventh in the line from Seth. And so he serves now as an exception to the pattern of death that is described as the norm in this chapter. 
I could have focused on these, the eight mentions of the word death, but I didn't want to do that today. I think you've got the point in the last many lessons that sin is not benign, sin is malignant, and has terrible consequences. Everybody got that point? Well, good. So we can move on now. And I want to focus in on this, the beauty of what happens with Enoch. Enoch's the seventh in the line from Seth, and he's an exception to this pattern of death that is so predominant in this chapter. This chapter has to remind you of, I think it reminds me anyway, of 2 Kings chapter 3, and Elijah's translation into heaven. Remember that story. It appears, and this is a difficult truth, but it appears as though neither Enoch nor Elijah suffered death in the same way that we do. They were, to use the term that Old Testament scholars prefer, translated. What that means, specifically, is, is a bit difficult to say. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, says that Enoch did not see death. The Greek term that's used there is a form of the word that means to see, but it can also mean to experience so in some way, in some way that's really not described in detail in this text, Enoch, and Elijah too, but specifically Enoch here, does not experience death, at least not in the same way of the other eight mentions in this chapter and nine, if we count Noah later. He doesn't experience it in the same way. There's a lot written about this. There's, there's probably too much written about it because we just can't say for sure exactly what's going on. I'll tell you something that's not going on, though. I'll tell you something that's absolutely not going on. Enoch does not receive his resurrection body here. It's not like his body is transformed. That's why scholarship is very careful to say translated and not transformed. The reason we know that for sure Enoch does not receive a resurrection body here is Christ is the first fruits. He's got the first resurrection body, and in my view, Enoch is still waiting for his. But in some way, because of this life that he lived, because he walked with God, and that's the phrase that we have to unpack, isn't it? What does it mean to walk with God? That's the key phrase for you today and for me today. This is, this is an eye-opener, I'm telling you. When we get this down, we will be able to enjoy life. We will be able to have our best life now, but we've got to recognize how to do that, and we've got to walk with God. There's a lot to that. But Enoch experiences some special departure that only one other person ever has experienced, and that being, apparently, Elijah. So I will say that Enoch did not receive his resurrection body at this point. Somehow he was translated. Perhaps there were no pains in his death. I don't know what it is, but some, some, somehow he was translated, and I receive, believe received some interim form until the point where he receives the resurrection body. So we at least we'll eliminate that. So if any of your study notes have that in there, just kind of put a pencil mark through them. Study notes are not inspired. It's okay if you do that. But this we can say... This we can say for sure. Enoch went to heaven. We can say that dogmatically. Enoch's physical body is not in heaven now. The physical body that he, that he had on earth has an old sin nature. So that physical body could not have just been taken up to heaven in that form and being enjoying heaven now. It's impossible. It can't happen because he still has Adam's trend. So no matter how righteous of a life he lived, that can't be what happened either. So we can say that for sure. His body was not transformed into a resurrection body. That also we can say for sure. Again, Christ is the first fruits. And guess who the second fruits are, if you want to call that? You and me. We get our resurrection bodies before Enoch, as righteous as he was. 
So whatever happened to Enoch, it was unique. And it was a very special blessing and an honor that came his way because, as this text has told us twice now, he walked with God. Enoch is held up as a model for others to follow during our time here on earth. It's worth observing, if you didn't notice, that Enoch is the seventh in the line from, uh, from, uh, from uh, Seth. Lamech was the seventh in the line from Cain. You remember, Lamech was the bad guy in the previous chapter. So you have in, the, in these two genealogies, in this, the seventh person in each line, Lamech being the seventh in, in that line, the evil line, that's as evil as you can get. And then Enoch, the seventh in this line, that's, at least for his time, is as good as you can get. Now make no mistake, in case you're visiting with us this morning, you've never heard this before, it really doesn't matter how good you are when it comes to your eternal life, your salvation. None of us can be good enough to earn our eternal life. That's not what happened with Enoch. That's not why he was translated. He was just good enough so he earned God's favor. That's not it. We're saved by grace through faith apart from works. Scriptures tell us that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. So if you've come this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ personally to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, I don't want you to think you can work your way to heaven. Don't take that from Enoch. Enoch is a model for people who have already trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins. But a Philippian jailer one time asked the Apostle Paul, what do I need to do to be saved? And maybe you've asked yourself that question lately. Well, Paul answered it. Very, very simply, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So don't mistake what we say now for a means of salvation. That's not the case. We're saved by grace through faith apart from works. And all you have to do, sounds so simple, but all you have to do is just tell God the Father. And he reads your thoughts. You don't have to speak it out loud. You don't have to come down here. We have no altar for you to come and kneel at. And that's on purpose. Because I don't want to confuse the issue. The issue is, what do you think in your soul of Jesus Christ? So if you've never trusted him, it's not that hard. You just admit to God the Father that you need him. And you say, you say, Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need help. I know I can't do it myself. I know I can't work my way to salvation. I trust Jesus Christ to forgive my sins, to grant me eternal life. And guess what? That very moment you do that, you're now in the family of God. You have eternal life. Your sins have been forgiven a wonderful day. So don't mistake Enoch for someone that's a model for salvation. This is a model for how we can have a happy life, how we can enjoy this life while we're here. Extra biblical literature, Jewish literature, presents Enoch as a man who exemplified righteousness. By extra biblical literature, I hope you understand Jewish literature. We're talking about Jewish writings that were not in the Bible, that were not contained in the Old Testament canon. Nobody pretends that Enoch was perfect. Nobody's ever been perfect short of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he lived righteously. And he lived righteously consistently. And that's the key. When we talk about walking with God, walking with the Lord, we want a consistent walk. That's how we'll be able to enjoy life in a culture of death, a consistent walk with him. But what in the world does it mean to walk with God? Sounds like some some Christian terminology, or maybe some, some Jewish terminology, that only we understand. Not really. 
in the New Testament sense, the Greek term is peripateo. It means it can mean to put one foot in front of another and move from one place to another. That's walking. We all do that from time to time. I did it last night. Had enjoyed that beautiful night that we had. I walked. But that's not what this term walking means so much here. When we walk, when we walk with God, it means that we're going in the same direction that God is going. It should be pleasant. If we're really walking with God, it's not a struggle. It should be pleasant. In the midst of a culture of death, it can still be something pleasant. Let me, say, let me tell you the story of two dogs. One is named Hannah, and the other is named Britta. Britta was a German shepherd that I had 35, 40 years ago. I'll, I'll put her, she's the, she's the example of Enoch, so I'm going to hold her off just for a moment. Hannah is my current dog, and we love Hannah, of course, a lot. <laughs> Hannah is a Doberman. She is the canine equivalent of a bimbo. She's, she's beautiful. She was bred for looks. She's a muscular female. If she was a show dog, she would have placed, I'm sure. But she is missing something in the intellect department. <laughs> For her whole eight or nine years, however long she's been alive, I've tried to train her. And I've tried to walk her outside with me on a leash. It just can't be done. I've tried every which way from Sunday to train her to walk on that leash with me. And what she does, as soon as she gets outside... She starts pulling. Now, you can't, a little bitty dog, I know the little bitty dog lovers here. That's okay. If a little bitty dog pulls you, you can just kind of put a finger and bring him back. But when a Doberman pulls you, you're allowed to dislocate your shoulder. And so when she gets out into the neighborhood, the first thing, if it's a, if it's a bird, she's going after the bird. If it's a squirrel, heaven help us. <laughs> Hospital visits are soon to follow. But she's jerking you all over the place. And it's no fun. Because when I'm walking, I jerk her back, you know, because I'm not going to have her do that. And if a dog, another dog goes by, my goodness, she just loses it. And it's a struggle every time I try to take her to walk. So guess what I haven't done in the last several years? I gave up. I don't walk her anymore. Because it's no fun for me, and it can't be that much fun for her, because she's constantly getting her neck jerked back to keep me from getting my shoulder dislocated. I still love her. She's still a member of our family. And I'm not putting myself up in this analogy as God, but she's not walking with me. <laughs> see, she's walking me, not I'm not walking her. You see? Now listen, if we're going to do it right with God, he needs to walk us. Now while I jerk Hannah back into line, and God will do that for us too, God's jerk is a whole lot more strong than mine is. There's another dog by the name of Britta. Britta was a German shepherd. I had Britta when I was in high school, so this was 35-plus years ago, maybe 40. Britta was an obedience champion. She was good-looking, too. Maybe not as good-looking in her breed as Hannah is in hers, but she was, she was a pretty good-looking dog. She won an obedience dog show for me one time. I had, I had Britta trained so well as a high, school, a high schooler that I could walk her along with me, not just on a leash, and she would pay attention. I could take the leash off of her. And she didn't bolt. She didn't run. She paid attention. She looked at me the whole time. She'd be walking. She'd look ahead a little bit, and then she'd look up at me. If I would turn real quickly, she'd turn real quickly. If I'd start going ahead, she'd go ahead. If I did a figure eight, which is one of the most difficult things you can do in those with a dog that doesn't want to stay with you, she'd be right there with you. Her, her head was right next to my thigh the whole time. I even took her to school with me one time, walked her through the hall, set her down in the classroom. She was my exhibit for the class, how you train a dog. 
it was a joy to walk her. And guess what? She had a good time walking with me. She didn't have to worry about where we were going. She didn't have to worry about if there was a squirrel that was on somebody's fence that she had to go after. I think she understood that if if there was any danger out there, I'd let her know about that. Hey, listen, there's danger over there, and I'd walk the other direction. One of the things I even did was when you train a dog like that, you train them to walk over uneven surfaces, over bridges, over uh, wire, uh, wire coverings for manholes and things like that, so that they trust you completely. Starting to get the idea? They trust you completely. Their attention is so much on their master because they trust the master to lead them in the right way at the right time over the right paths. And that master's not going to lead them into danger. Britta had a whole lot better time in life than Hannah's having. Now, Hannah thinks she's having a good time, but she'd have an even better time if she'd let me walk. If she'd pay attention to me. If she wouldn't try to bolt every time we go out, as if there's something better out there than there is right next to my side. She thinks there's something better somewhere else. And then we come to God. When we walk with God, it means that we're going on in the same direction that God's going. Now, how can that happen? How can we walk with God and go in the same direction? We've got to keep our eyes on Him. We can't be looking everywhere else chasing squirrels. We've got to keep our eyes on Him consistently. And where He goes, I go. Where He wants me to go, I know I can trust Him. Because He has my best interest in life. He wants to bless me. It's hard for me to bless Hannah when she misbehaves like that. I blessed Britta all the time. She would come home, I'd give her the treats, I'd pet her, and what a good girl you were. And she wanted more of that. Don't you want to enjoy this life now? Don't you want to be blessed now? Well, the way we do it is we keep our focus on our master with a capital M. That's how we do it. When we walk with God, it means we actually enjoy his company. If you think you're walking with God and it's drudgery for you, if it's a struggle for you, I'll obey him, but I sure don't want to. If that's the attitude, guess what? You're not walking with God. Not in the biblical sense. When we obey reluctantly, that's not the kind of obedience God really wants. It's better than disobedience. But God would like us to trust Him. Our culture says it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. The Bible says don't do it. What the culture doesn't tell you is that there are terrible consequences to that. You see, God knows that. He knows the consequences, both physical and emotional, that come from that. Disease, undesired pregnancies. You know, the problem is not so much an abortion problem. The problem is we have disobeyed God in the beginning for having the sex outside of marriage. That's 99.9-something percent of the abortions that take place. We need to back up one step and remind people that God knows best. And I just picked that one because it's one I think everybody could easily see and agree upon. But God knows best. He's our master. When he opens the door, let's don't bolt for the greenest pasture that we can find. We need to look at him and say, do you want me to walk through that door? Will you walk through it? I'm with you. You don't walk through that door, I'm not going. When you stop, I sit. When you, when you point your finger down, I lay down. If you say stay, I stay. Because I trust you. Enoch trusted God. And he walked with God. And that's why he had this incredible life. When we walk with God, it means God's our friend. 
we enjoy his company, and he is our friend. He's continually in our thoughts. Just like any other person who's become extremely important to you, or plan, or activity. You've been in that situation before, I know, where someone has so enamored you that you're thinking about them all the time. Maybe back when you were first married or, or dating, you thought about that person all the time. You were focused upon them. That's the way, that's the way God wants to be with us. And that, it's in our best interest to do that. You know what it boils down to? Do you, trust, do you trust God or not? That's what it really boils down to. Now, I assume everybody in this room, most of the faces are familiar to me, I assume everybody in this room has personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life. You don't have to amen it, but I assume everybody has done that. That's a pretty big thing to trust God with, don't you think? Our eternal destiny? Eternal is a long time. We've trusted him for this big, big thing. And then when we live our Christian lives, oftentimes we live as though we don't trust him for the little things. I'm going to trust him with my eternal life, but I don't know if I can trust him on where I need to go to college. I can trust him to save me from my sins, but I don't know if I can trust him with who I'm going to marry. No, it's silly. It's, it's totally illogical. It's irrational. We should trust him with everything. So when we walk with God, we enjoy his company. When we walk with God, it means he's our friend. When a person is accustomed to walking with God and then sin enters into the life of that person, that individual will find no rest until that sin is confessed and repented of. If you're accustomed to walking with God, and you mess up, and we will. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-11 through 11 tells us we're going to mess up from time to time. To use my dog analogy, we're going to look over at that squirrel from time to time. But as soon as we look, we realize, oh, wait a minute, that's not where I should be looking. I need to get my head back over here before the master has to discipline me. That's what confession is. That's what repentance is. Now, confession without repentance would be like this. You look over the squirrel, you look back. You look over the squirrel, you look back. You look over the squirrel, you look back. <laughs> and sooner or later, you will get disciplined for that. That's not, that's not the Christian. That's not walking with God. But if you're accustomed to walking with God, if you're accustomed to looking at him, and all of a sudden you realize, it's been a little while now, and I've not been looking at him lately, then you're, gonna, you're going to have a desire from within. The Holy Spirit's going to motivate you to do it. To confess that sin and to, and to begin to, to reestablish the joy of our salvation, as David said. David went a full year, at least a full year, maybe more, without enjoying his salvation. He had salvation, but he didn't enjoy it until after he realized he had taken his eyes off of God and he was doing things his way. He had no regard for God's laws, he had no regard even for his friends. Bathsheba was one of his best friend's wives. What was he thinking? He wasn't looking at God when that happened. When a person is accustomed to walking with God, we will be quick to confess our sins, and not just to confess, but repent of it. Move away from it and move back into God's fellowship. Marcus Dodds, the Old Testament writer, describes it this way. Walking with God, he says, is a persistent endeavor to hold on all our life open to God's inspection and in conformity to his will. All of our life. Not just the parts we want to give up to him, not just the parts we think we can trust him with. You know, you know how insulting that is to God? 
So I'm going to give you this, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to hold this part back because I think I know better what's going to make me happy in this area of my life than you do. You're not walking with God. Now, in verses 28 through 31, as we close, there's a postscript to this passage. And Lamech lived 182 years. This is a different Lamech than we met in chapter 4. More than one person can be named the same thing. And Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, after he had other sons and daughters. You notice the pattern here. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in chapter 9, verse 29, it says he died as well. In this final panel, we see another hint of grace and a departure from the pattern of death that predominates this chapter as Noah is introduced. It's just an introduction. The next three chapters give us a lot of detail on the life of Noah, particularly one aspect of the life with the flood. Lamech names Noah, and again, this is a different Lamech from the evil person that we met last week. And while naming his son, Lamech expresses hope. Hope for relief from this culture of death. If we read ahead, we realize there really isn't going to be any relief, that the culture of death gets worse and worse, and God, God has to destroy. But that's Lamech's hope. And we'll see much more about Noah in the coming weeks. Enoch walked with God and escaped from certain aspects of the curse. Again, I can't tell you specifically what it means to be translated. But I can tell you it doesn't mean that he's transformed. But something about his departure from this earth was very special. Noah's life brought the prospect for comfort from the curse. So in summary, as we conclude, this chapter, which outlines ten generations from Adam in the line of Seth, stresses the predominance of death, but there's evidence of grace throughout. The report of Adam's having other sons and daughters implies fertility, which means grace was in view. Enoch's 300-year walk with God 300 years of walking with God. Provides us a model for one to whom the effects of the curse were minimalized. This doesn't mean that we will ever fully escape the effects of the fall, the effects of the curse. We can't do that, this side of heaven. But the effects of the fall can be softened when one trusts Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life. And when we walk with God, when we keep our attention upon Him, when we understand what his commands are, and when we lovingly and willingly obey them. Not in a struggling way. The scriptures uses the term submission. When we submit to him and say, I hate the phrase, let go and let God, because some people have co-opted that in a bad way, but really that's what we're doing. We're letting go and we're keeping our eyes on him, and we're letting him lead the way. When we do that, the effects of the fall, the effects of the curse can be softened, minimalized. And then Noah's birth gives hope for the continuing prospect of comfort in spite of the curse. 
the effects of the fall will be with us until we are promoted to heaven. But the effects of the fall can be softened when we walk with God. God has created each of us to enjoy his blessing. But the enjoyment of that blessing demands faithful, loving, willing obedience. Let's walk with God. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you loved us enough to send your Son to die for us so that when we trust him, we can have eternal life. And Father, we are so grateful that as part of your plan, you have graced us out and you've given us the opportunity to walk with you. Father, you are such a wonderful, loving, kind leader. You know where you're going, and you know where we should go as well. May we keep our eyes upon you in the days to come. And like Enoch as our model, may we consistently walk with you. We'll ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.